Hello and welcome to the 18th episode of the Gradient podcast. The Gradient is a digital magazine that aims to be a place for discussion about research and the trends in artificial intelligence and machine learning. We interview various people in AI, such as engineers, researchers, artists, and more. I'm your host, Andrei Karenkov. In this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Upal Asan. Upal Asan cares about people first, technology second. He's a doctoral candidate in the School of Interactive Computing at Georgia Tech and an affiliate at the Data and Society Research Institute. Combining his expertise in AI and background in philosophy, his work in explainable AI or XAI aims to foster a future where anyone, regardless of their background, can use AI powered technology with dignity. Putting the human first and focusing on how our values shape the use and abuse of technology, his work has coined the term human-centered explainable AI, which is a subfield of explainable AI, and charted its visions. Actively publishing in top peer-reviewed venues like Kai, his work has received multiple awards and been covered in major media outlets. Bridging industry and academia, he serves on multiple program committees in HCI and AI conferences, such as NeurIPS and DIS, and actively connects these com- communities. By promoting equity and ethics in AI, he wants to ensure stakeholders who aren't at the table do not end up on the menu. Outside research, he is an advisor for Ehler Asha, an educational institute he started for underprivileged children subjected to child labor. On Twitter, you can follow him at at Upal Asan, U-P-O-L-E-H-S-A-N. So I'm very excited for this. Uh, Upal has written the grain before, and I think his work is super cool. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Upal. Thank you for having me, Andre. It's a pleasure to be here. Definitely. So as we usually do in these episodes, before diving into your work, uh, a bit on your sort of background, I'm curious, how did you get into working on AI? I think your uh, trajectory might be interesting with your background in philosophy as well. Yes, I think uh, I have Isaac Asimov to kind of attribute that credit to um, uh, when I was very young. I got hooked into his books. I have read 47 of his books, not just the science fictions that he wow, has written. that's a lot, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, the maestro is, is someone who's near and dear to my heart, which makes watching Foundation in Apple TV right now a very scary prospect. Oh, uh, yeah. Because I remember those things. But I think Asimov pushed me to think about artificial intelligence in ways that I don't think I would have thought of. Uh, because all of his books, if you think about it, it's about how does how can we find flaws in the three laws of robotics that mm-hmm. kind of he proposed, right? Um, and in college, I was very so I, I grew up in a philosophy department that had a lot of cognitive scientists in them, but who were teaching analytic philosophy. Um, and that's where I actually got into AI, like got hooked into it. I was like, okay. And maybe initially I had more ambitious goals of like creating like sort of like AGI, so to speak. But then over time, I started getting more practical about it. And after uh, graduating, I actually spent a lot of time doing management consulting and then ran a startup. 
And in those experiences, I was dealing with AI-mediated applications, but mostly on the consumer side, right? So I had clients who were really using this at the enterprise level. And I was seeing how sometimes, despite best intentions, the real use of these systems were suffering. So that's when, when I got into the PhD journey, I started thinking of artificial intelligence, but from the human side. Right. And this was uh, roughly when, what year? Yeah. So um, I, I had like, so it was like I started the PhD journey roughly around 2015, 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the work that I had done before that was like the last four years of before that's so around like 2012, 13. Um, so that's like the industry experience very much drives a lot of my insights into the work today, um, especially seeing people. And I do consult even now. Uh, so I'm very much in the applied setting of these research discussions, which helped me kind of bridge to, but that's why you'll see, like, even in my work, I do tend to have a more applied kind of a connotation to it. Yeah. Yeah. I was just wondering, because I think, you know, obviously there's been a huge boom in AI over the past decade and explainable AI, which, you know, you work in has been more and more uh, an area of study, but I think um, it took it a little while. It sort of is catching up in some sense, mm-hmm. you know, as, as AI is getting deployed. Yeah, and then so you started your PhD journey in 2015. Did you go to explainable AI right away or did it sort of, did you find your way there a bit later? That's a really great question. No, I actually started my journey doing affective computing. So I was very much interested in helping children with autism learn um, about nonverbal communication through head-up displays and Google Glass was very hot back then. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I was trying to develop algorithms, trying to help um, people who had, had, had difficulties kind of processing social signals to use some kind of a prosthetic uh, to kind of augment that social interaction. So that's how I actually started. And then after that, I am originally from Bangladesh, so I, the Global South has been very much uh, and is still a very much core part of my existence. So after that, I started looking at how do these technologies kind of behave in the Global South where the technology is not necessarily made in, right? Um, after that, I think it was in 2016 or 17 where DARPA had that XAI grant and... That was the first time where, because, and it's interesting, right? Like explainability of AI is not new. If you look at the literature in the 80s, there is a lot of work. In fact, the term explainable AI was coined back in the 80s of the 90s. Um, this was based on the knowledge, uh, you know, the knowledge-based systems that we had back in the day. Um, but with the advent of deep learning and deep learning becoming kind of enterprise level, almost like coming of age, uh, you see then there is this need to hold these systems accountable. So I actually uh, had you know walked into my advisor's office at that time and I was asking, you know, what kind of projects do we have to work on? And um, he said, and you know, my advisor is the fantastic Mark Rudell. And Mark uh, kind of said that, hey, uh, there is this other project that no one really has taken upon themselves because we don't really know what it would look like 
Um, and I said, what is it? It's like this explainable AI thing. And till <laughs> at that time, like I had not heard about like the term. I was like, this sounds like interesting. And, and I think in, in upon reflection, what I've realized about myself is I do very well when it's an empty slate and mm-hmm. I get to paint my own picture rather than a very well-formed slate. So I was very lucky to get into the debate very early on in the second resurgence, I would argue. Because the second life XAI has had is, I think, much more longer than the first life it had. Because it was there, and but it also wasn't there in the early 1980s. Um, so then I started looking into, um, you know, I started on the algorithmic side, frankly, uh, and, and, and trying to work with algorithms. And then over time, I got on the human side. Um, and you are right, I think. Um, explainable AI is very much in flux. That's how I would talk about it. Um, I think we as a community, we are still trying to figure out how to navigate uh, this field, uh, being consistent in our terminology, in the way we do our work. But there is also a certain level of beauty in that. Um, and, And in that case, I'm kind of drawn by the social construction of technology lenses, uh, something pioneered by Weibe Biker. Um, and he talked about relevant social groups, right? So in any piece of technology, you will have relevant social groups. Uh, in that case, Weibe was talking about um, bicycles, right? Bicycles mm-hmm. had very relevant social groups. And each relevant social group, so these are stakeholders who have skin in the game, actually give meaning to the technology as much as the technology gives meaning to them, right? So if you think about it, uh, you know, mountain bikes, BMX bikes, you know, like racing bikes are different bikes, right? And it's because of the stakeholders, they get very different meaning. All of them are bicycles, but they look very different. And I think within explainability, we have people from the algorithmic side, uh, basically in AI and ML, from the uh, HCI side, and now we are having stakeholders in the public policy side, um, in the regulation side, in the auditing side. So I think each of these stakeholders are also adding their own lenses to what is explainable AI, which is why you will see a lot of flux. Yeah, it's super interesting seeing this field kind of grow and there's so much area to cover that I think, you know, maybe compared to something like computer vision, you know, I think there's a lot more kind of maybe foundational or at least, you know, very conceptually uh, uh, important work. And, and we'll get into it. I think some of yours <laughs> certainly could be, could be called that. And yeah, your journey is really interesting. It's always fun to hear about how people bring in their experience before the PhD and how that sort of um, guides their their direction. In my case, I started in robotics in high school and then, you know, did it in college. And then, you know, even though I went in some other directions and I, I came back to it. So it's, it's always interesting to see how it happens. I love that story because it's weird, right? Because I have a, in undergrad, I have a, like a BS in electrical engineering and a BA in philosophy, right? And mm-hmm. I never thought I would use the philosophy degree on a daily basis as much as I use it today. In fact, my edge in explainable AI actually comes from my philosophy training uh, because I can access the writing that is coming from there. Because, you know, as academics, a part of our training is how to read a certain body of work. But then when you're also trained in computer science, you can bridge it. Mm -hmm. 
And I think there is something to be said there, especially for PhD students or other practitioners and researchers listening is, I have been, my mentors have always said like, you know, if you really want to make a name, pick an area A, pick an area B, and then intersect them. Mm-hmm. And you might actually get a C that is, has, a, has an interesting angle to it that makes your work more relevant, more impactful. So I love also your story about robotics and how you are back full circle. I think many of us in some ways or the other end up where our interest kind of started. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's quite interesting. You know, I, I worked in robotics a lot in undergrad and I worked a lot in more kind of classical robotic algorithms, not, no neural nets. And then that definitely informed my understanding and, and my ability to get into it. So always, always cool to see how that happens. So with that kind of uh, introduction to how you got here out of the way, let's start diving into your work. Uh, we'll be focusing a lot on a particular paper uh, that I think is very cool. But before that, let's just give the listeners a bit of a conceptual kind of uh, introduction to the field, I suppose, and, and your general work. So just common basics, you know, quick introduction. Could you explain what explainable AI is? Maybe, you know, not super deeply at a surface level and, and why it's important. Yeah. So let's start with why it's important and then I'll share why, what it is. And I think the importance drives what it is. Um, mm-hmm. So with, with, with today, like AI powered decision-making is everywhere from uh, radi- radiologists using um, AI powered decision support systems to diagnose chest uh, COVID pneumonia on chest x-rays, right? to uh, loan officers using algorithms to determine if you are loan worthy or not, um, to, uh, you know, the recidivism cases, right? So as we go on, more and more consequential decisions that we are making are either powered through AI or automated by AI. So this actually creates a need for AI to be held accountable. Right. If something is doing something consequential, I need to be able to ask why. Mm -hmm. And the answer to that why question is where explainable AI comes in. Broadly speaking, and many people have many different definitions of it, at least the way uh, our lab and I have conceptualized it in the years of work we have done is explainable AI refers to the techniques, the strategies, the philosophies that can help us as stakeholders in, with an AI system. So it could be end users, developers, data scientists, understand why the, the system did what it did. Um, and again, this is why it's also human-centered in the sense that it, it's not just the algorithm, right? There's a human at the end of it trying to understand it. Um, so it can take many forms. Uh, sometimes these explanations can be in the form of natural language, plain English, for instance, explanations like textual. Sometimes these explanations can be in the form of visualizations. Um, sometimes these explanations can be in the form of data structures. Uh, so at the, at the guts of a neural net mm-hmm. uh, where you're trying to figure out like which layer is most important. Um, so these explanations and explainable AI, the thing to take away is very pluralistic. It's not monolithic. It's not, there's not one little thing that fits all, but at the core of it, 
it's about understanding the decision making in a way that makes sense to the user, in a way that makes sense to the person interpreting it. Does that help? Yeah, no, that, that explains it, I think, quite well. And I guess uh, it's worth noting that this is especially difficult these days because we are working a lot with deep learning. And the way that works is you have a huge model of what you weights, you, you train it on a data set, and then what you get is a thing where you can throw in an input and get an output, right? And the challenge is now explain <laughs> why it's doing why it, what it's doing, right? And Absolutely. Then, yeah. Yeah. And actually now uh, that brings to another point, uh, you know, there are many ways and then you hear different words being kind of used. Mm -hmm. um, in, in my view, I kind of split explainability into like transparency, interpretability um, kind of branches and then post hoc explainability. So I'll, I'll cover all each of these. So transparency would be almost like clear boxing it. So like instead of like black boxing it, could you just make the model just completely transparent. Like mm -hmm. that's just one of the ideas. Just right? understand the model itself. Yeah. Then interpretability involves, I, in my view, the able to scrutinize an algorithm. So in other words, like, like a decision tree, right? Like the infrastructure or the architecture affords the fact that I can poke and prod and I can get a good understanding and I can interpret what the model is doing, right? But that also requires a level of expertise. Like you need to have the training to interpret a decision tree. You cannot just give, you know, you can't just give anyone on the street, like, hey, here's a decision tree and interpret it, right? So there's this level of interpretation that comes in, but the in architecture of the model can should also be able to support it. But mm -hmm. now, as you say, like deep learning algorithms are not really interpretable by their architecture, right? Like they're not very friendly on that side. So recently, there has been a very big push towards what we call post-hoc explanations, right? So adding a, a, a model on top of the black box, so to speak, to make it somewhat transparent. So in other words, can I generate the explanation after the decision has been made? Uh, so those are the three main branches you see work within explainable AI these days. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people do use the word explainability and interpretability interchangeably. Um, I don't. I tend to see explainability as a larger umbrella um, that can house, but doesn't mean I'm right, to be honest, right? Like it's being very precise about what you're saying when you're saying it. Um, does that help like kind of give the demarcation of the landscape as well of the area in the work? Yeah, yeah, of course. It's it's interesting that at least you can think of it in these different dimensions. And I think that also helps understand sort of the, the ways you might approach it. And mm -hmm. speaking of that, as we've introduced in the intro, your work focuses in particular on human-centered XAI, which is in some ways in contrast to algorithm-centered XAI. So what is human-centered XAI in your view, again, at kind of a surface level? Yeah, um, it's about, uh, I guess the way to kind of think about human-centered XAI is the following, like there is a myth often in explainable AI where we tend to think that if we could just open the black box, everything will be fine, right? Um, and my, my, my response to the myth is often not everything that matters actually is inside the box. Why? Because humans don't live inside the black box of AI. They're outside and around it. And given, um, you know, humans are so instrumental in this ecosystem, right? Um, 
it might not be a bad idea to start looking around the box to understand what are these value systems, what are people's ways of thinking that can ultimately aid that understandability that is so instrumental to explainable AI. So human-centered explainable AI, what it does, it, it fundamentally shifts the attention. And it doesn't say that algorithm-centered work is bad by any means. It's, it's not saying that. What it's saying is we need to put just as much attention on the human, on who is opening the box, as much as opening the box. Right. You, you need to sort of pay attention, care about the human aspect and not just, you know, think about the model and then, you know, maybe the human can <laughs> take what you develop from a model later and, and they can figure it out. That makes a lot of sense. And you, you have a great motivating example of this uh, in your Gradient article uh, having to do with this uh, firewall management thing and why human-centered aspect was necessary. So, yeah, I, I found it very cool. Uh, can you go over that? Yeah. So this was a um, this was a consulting project that I had the privilege of kind of helping out with. They had a cybersecurity company had hired me to uh, address a very interesting issue of this uh, firewall management system. And, you know, in, in that environment, one thing that happens is the problem was with bloat. So what is bloat? Bloat is what happens when people open ports on a firewall and forget to close them. So over time, <laughs> you get a bunch of stuff that is open. But it, then what happens is in an enterprise scale, there is so many open ports that it's humanly impossible to go through every one of them and check. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> right? So they had a system that would analyze all these ports and suggest which ones to remain closed versus which one to remain open. The problem was, the problem here was rather tricky. Um, the system was actually performing rather well, around the 90% accuracy. It had really good algorithmic transparency. But the problem was less than 2% of the workforce was actually engaging with it and using it. Yeah, and uh, that's not what you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, so and, and, and what was that? Yeah. So, and, you know, I was brought in with the uh, task of fixing this and the assumption was still back then. And this was before we kind of coined the term human-centered XAI. And this is the project that actually drives a lot of that thinking. The, the assumption was, you know, maybe the solution is within the algorithm. Just fix the algorithm. Maybe make it explain better. Maybe open the box differently, so to speak. Um, and, and what I found at the end of the day, just to give a, you know, cut the long story short, I guess, um, is there was nothing that was wrong with the algorithm. The explainability that this company was looking for was at the intersection of the human and the machine, not entirely mm -hmm. within the machine. Um, so what we found in this project, the assumption was still that, you know, something must be wrong with the algorithm. This was before we had coined the term human-centered XAI. A lot of the work here actually drove uh, the philosophy behind it. Um, and one thing that, that came up was nothing was actually, like we couldn't do much at the algorithmic level that helped the explainability mm -hmm. of the system. Um, the changes that had to be done, which actually I think we'll get into when we discuss the expanding explainability paper, is at the social level. So what was the problem here was people had no idea how to calibrate their trust 
on this mm. system that uh, without really understanding how others are also interacting with the system, right? So for instance, if I'm faced with a new system and there is no notion of the ground truth, right? Um, and the easiest example to share here was there was a young analyst and I'm using pseudonyms like Julie and, and Julie uh, uh, had a recommendation from the AI system and to close a few ports. And on paper, the recommendation was not wrong. Uh, the AI had suggested that, hey, uh, you know, if you close these ports because they have been open for a long time, they have not been used. So technically, these are not bad suggestions. Mm-hmm. Julie, not knowing a lot of the institutional history and how things are done, accepted the AI's decision. Two weeks later, the company faced a breach and then lost around $2 million in Oof. one hour. What had happened was... Julie had accidentally closed, following the AI's recommendation, the backup server ports, right? Mm -hmm. So because they're backup server ports, of course, it's good that they have not been used, right? It is also good that they're open. So this kind of highlights a very interesting tension here, that even though the AI system was technically not right, Julie actually got fired, right? That's, so, that's a shame, yeah. Yeah, so the accountability squarely lied on the human user, even though the human user, in this case, they're not data scientists, right? They're cybersecurity analysts. They shouldn't have to know how this AI is working. So it's very hard in real-world situations to answer the following question. What does this AI not know? Mm. Right? And to address that question, it's almost an unknown unknown, right? Um you need, and in this case, in this case study, they needed this thing, uh, what the socio-organizational context to help them understand how are other people dealing with it. Um, and, and watching how others are acting with it, they were able to develop more robust mental models of how to calibrate their trust on the system. In other words, which are the situations the AI performs really well and which are the situations the AI does not perform really well. Because uni- performance is not uniform. That's the other reality in these real-world systems. So that's just a, you know, just a quick summarization of that, of that, of that uh, case study, which kind of showed me that there were elements outside the black box that we really needed to incorporate in the decision-making to help decision-makers do it right. And, mm-hmm. and to make sure accountability was shared rather than be in, inappropriately placed all on the human and nothing on the machine. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I think a lot of listeners might now appreciate the importance of this kind of work uh, in terms of, you know, the outcome here. And, and I think we'll dig in a, a bit more into where you wanted up in terms of, you know, how you do this, which was really interesting. Now, with a lot of these concepts uh, laid out, before we get into kind of our our main focus, I thought it would be fun to walk through kind of your PhD journey in some sense of, you know, your trajectory of starting out less human-centered and then sort of discovering that and and more and more coming closer to where you are now. So first, uh, you had kind of, let's say, a more traditional maybe uh, XAI work called rationalization and neural machine translation approach to generating natural language explanations. So just in brief, uh, you know, what was this paper and and sort of what was the contribution there? 
No, thank you for asking that. I think this is the phase in my dissertation that I call turn to the machine. Mm -hmm. It kind of takes a few turns. In this turn to the machine, um, Mark and I kind of, and Brent, uh, so I just want to acknowledge some of my co-authors, like Brent Harrison, who's at the University of Kentucky, Mark Riddell, obviously, who's at Georgia Tech, um, and uh, Pradyumna, who is also now a PhD student at Georgia Tech, and uh, Larry Chan, who is now graduated from Georgia Tech. We kind of started thinking that, you know, um, wouldn't it be nice if an AI system talked to you or thought out loud in plain English? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the reason why we kind of thought about that was, hey, um, not everyone has the background to interpret models, right? Um, and our, a lot of our end users are not AI experts. But everyone, if they can speak and read and write in English, could understand English, right? In fact, that's how we even communicate. So I, in this paper, actually drew a lot of inspiration from philosophy of language, mainly the work of Jerry Fodor, um, to kind of, and work with Brent to kind of develop the algorithmic infrastructure to answer the following question. And and this is the question that is asked mainly in this paper. Can we, this is almost like an existence proof, like can we generate rationales from using a neural machine translation approach? Um, And this was the first one uh, to our knowledge that uses an NMT mechanism instead of translating from like, you know, English to Bengali, like natural language A to natural language B, we felt, what if we replace one of the natural languages with some data structures? Right, right. And, and that's the insight in this case. And the innovation was we were able to, back in the day, like when this paper was published back in 2017-18, there was a lot of work going on automated image captioning and stuff like that, but very little work was done on sequential decision-making, right? So like, uh, you know, if you can think of robotics, right? Like getting a robot from point A in the kitchen to point B in the kitchen is a sequential decision-making task. So yeah. we actually took a sequential decision-making environment and made an AI agent navigate it while being able to think out loud in plain English. If I remember correctly, this was like uh, the game Frogger, yes. right? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, so that, that was an homage to a lot of the game work that goes at the Entertainment Intelligent and the Human Centered AI Lab at Georgia Tech. So we kind of leveraged a lot of our game AI history, mm-hmm. uh, which I know, you know, I know you were at Georgia Tech for undergrads. So I think you might also be familiar with a bit of that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, Frogger is a fun example because it's pretty intuitive, right? There's a, you know, why do you want to jump forward while well, there's a car <laughs> racing yeah. towards me? Yeah. So I want to avoid it. Um, yeah, but that was you know, a cool start and, and certainly interesting. But since then, you've moved more towards the human center aspect. So let's go into the next step. Uh, I suppose return to the human which I think started with this other paper, automated rationale generation, kind of extending this, mm-hmm. but then a technique for explainable AI and its effects on human perceptions. Um, so how did that come about? So, yeah, so this one, so after we asked the question, can we generate? And the answer was yes. Now we ask the question, okay, these generated rationales, are they any good, right? Like, cause back then, if you think about how we used to evaluate these generative systems, you know, blue score or other procedural techniques are good, but we don't really get a sense of how good they are to human beings, 
right? Mm-hmm. Like, do people actually find these plausible? So in this paper, sort of like that kind of starts the turn to the human, we presented the first work that gave a robust human-centered user study along certain dimensions of user perceptions to evaluate these rationale generating systems. And what we found was that, you know, and we bridged a lot of work. So I I took all of these measures and adapted it from work in HCI, human robot interaction, as well as the technology acceptance models from back in the 90s when automation was becoming hot. Um, And we found fascinating things around not just the fact that these were plausible. So in this paper, we just didn't make the uh, frogger kind of say things in one way. We were able to uh, tweak the network in a way that I could make Frogger talk more in detail versus say things more shortly in its rationales, right? Um, and we found that the the level of detail also had a lot of interesting uh, interweaving effects on people's trust, people's confidence, how tolerant were they when the robot, like the Frogger failed, right? Mm-hmm. So this was a really interesting deep dive. And we just not only did the quali- quantitative part, we did a really good qualitative part as well. And, you know, these were crowd workers and, you know, getting Amazon mechanical turpers to take a 45 minute task is not easy. right? <laughs> yeah. And so we were like in the methodology part, I think we were very happy with it. And I'm so proud of the team that did it. Um, there was Cheng Han and, and another research assistant who were undergrads at Georgia Tech who helped us create a, a really good data collection pipeline that helped us collect these rationales to train. And then we not only trained, but we also tested it. So that was the end-to-end kind of application of this mm-hmm. uh, that really made the paper one of my favorite papers that I've written. Great. Yeah, it's, this reminds me a little bit of the whole like subfield of social robotics is quite interesting because again there's a lot to do with human perceptions and like how do you communicate intent of grasping a cup mm-hmm. in a way that you know people can understand or how do you you know appear friendly and so on that's a, its own whole thing and it's always interesting to see that you know aside from algorithms aside from models if you need ai out there in the real world this is also a big challenge Indeed. Yeah. So in this one, uh, one aspect that differs from the other work we'll, we'll get to soon is here you sort of are still dealing with a one-to-one interaction. A, a person is playing mm-hmm. a game and then the AI agent is kind of trying to make it clear what's going on. And you already mentioned in your example that, you know, you need in many real world situations to go beyond that. You need organizational context. You need to understand groups of people, so to speak. And that takes us to the concept of socio-technical challenges. Um, Yeah. So how did you make that turn and, yeah, what is that compared to this one-to-one paradigm? Absolutely. So you, you hit the uh, nail on the head right there. It's like a lot of the way we were thinking about the rational generation work, the interaction paradigm was very much one-to-one. And I, you know, based on my prior work in industry settings, I started realizing that is that truly representative of what happens Um, And I started realizing that, no, we need to think more that like these AI systems are never, 
in a vacuum. They're often situated in larger organizational environments. Um, so in that case, uh, how do we think about this? How do we conceptualize this? So this kind of forced us, and this is probably the first kind of conceptual paper that I have written, is to kind of outline, so we kind of coined the term human-centered XAI, but we also wanted to say, you know, how do you operationalize this thing? So we bridged theories from critical AI studies, like critical technical practice, in HCI, like reflective design and value-sensitive design, and we kind of talked a little bit about, okay, now we have this insight that we have to not just care about one person, but also multiple stakeholders in the, in the system. So going back to the cybersecurity example, right? It's not just the analyst who is making the decision. It's also the decision of the analysts previous who had made similar decisions in the past. So that kind of forced us to kind of imagine and envision uh, an explainable AI paradigm that is more human-centered and not just one human, but also incorporates many humans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there comes the socio-technical aspect, you know, uh, social being, you know, interactions between people and even organizations. So there you marry sort of the, the groups of people with the technical problem, which now you really need to think about both. And uh that, uh, as far as I understand, was sort of a kind of new direction that wasn't really, you know, the norm or established in the field. Yeah, and I think that's a very important point. Um, in this case, I had drawn a lot of um, inspiration from the fact literature, so the fairness, accountability, and transparency literature, where they were very much at that time thinking very socio-technically. And I'm always reminded of, I watched this video from Microsoft Research's like responsible AI um, kind of envisions. And Hannah Wallach, who is at MSR in uh, New York, had this fascinating line that I cannot like repeat verbatim, but the version that I remember is, today, our systems, uh, AI systems are embedded in very complex social environments. Mm -hmm. So that means our, the effects that these technical systems have are social. So that means they're fundamentally socio-technical in nature, in terms of their complexities as well as their impacts. So when we keep that in mind, I started asking myself, how can we get a good idea about explainable AI if we do not take a socio-technical perspective? Given, you know, in, in the real world, that's how these systems are. Um, so that's actually a lot of the things that drove the socio-technical lens, so to speak. And you are right, like, this was the first paper to our knowledge to kind of highlight that explicitly in the context of explainable AI. Yeah, and I find it interesting, I think, it, it seems like it would be easy to not have this realization if you come from a traditional sort of AI computer science research background where you just jump into a PhD, you know, there you work in your office in the computer science building, you know, doing your research, and it's easy to forget sort of about the outside world. So I think it's, it's interesting also that having had all this background outside working in actual organizations, I think I would imagine that also, you know, made it easier for you to, to get here. Yeah, it was, and it's humbling, right? Because you fail so many times trying to do this, and that's the only way sometimes we learn, right? 
I, you know, my consulting projects are never like linear or straightforward because they often reach out to me when problems are so complicated that in-house teams need external help. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of us and the, the lesson that I have learned through all of this is embracing um, a sense of, uh, you know, taking a learning mentality from a lot of the, uh, there is a famous paper, I forget the name of the author, who kind of framed mistakes as missed takes like you know in a, in a movie you take multiple takes mm -hmm. and not all the takes work so a lot of them are missed takes right so I, I i really embrace that mentality of missed takes not all projects will work out you'll have a lot of missed takes i guess um, mm -hmm. but nothing is a mistake per se and i think that really helped me have a more iterative mindset which has paid a lot of dividends in getting a lot of this work done yeah i think it's interesting how in some sense, especially doing a PhD really enforces that. You really <laughs> have to adapt to that because you're going to have failures, but all those failures will inform your understanding and, and ultimately guide you to something interesting, ideally, you know. Um, yeah, so as you did the CERN, that led to uh, this paper, Human-Centered Explainable AI Towards a Reflective Socio-Technical Approach, where you you know, lay a lot of groundwork for how we can move towards that. And we, we really can't get too much into it. It's, it's quite detailed in itself, but you did write this excellent piece on a gradient towards human-centered explainable AI every journey so far. So we're going to link to that in the description and you can just you know, find out a gradient and recommend you read that. But for now, we're going to actually focus on a more recent work expanding explainability towards social transparency in AI systems. So to get into it, uh, before even getting into any of the details, uh, you know, what was your goal in starting this project and sort of a problem that motivated it? Well, this is, uh, fr uh, frankly, uh I feel like this was the paper that like the, the, the human centered XAI paper was the paper that needed to be written first for me to actually write this paper. And, you know, a lot of the work in that cybersecurity company kind of really informed this. So, you know, for the longest time, I have been kind of arguing that, you know, we need to look outside the box, right? For explainability. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then, you know, largely speaking, the community will come back and ask, all right, Upal, I kind of get what you're trying to say, but what? outside what is outside what do you want us to think about um and and the the kernel of this paper is fundamentally and as as the title kind of says expanding explainability it expands our conception of explainable ai beyond the realms of algorithmic transparency by doing what by adding this new concept called social transparency, which is actually like not like new, new in the sense that we created it. In the in the context of XAI, it's new. There is social right. transparency in online systems back from the 90s. Uh, and, you know, in the paper, we kind of you know, pay homage to a lot of those work. Um, mm -hmm. But it's fundamentally making the following observation. So within AI systems, and I think this is where it becomes very tricky. When... When we say AI systems, it's actually somewhat of a misnomer because when we say AI systems, a very important part is left out and it's often implicit, which is the human part. Implicit in AI systems are what we call human AI assemblages, right? So mm -hmm. these are two couple things. 
So ideally, what you're really going for is the explainability of this assemblage, right? The human part being often implicit. But, but how can you, right, get the explainability of this assemblage, this two-part system, the human and the AI, by just focusing on the AI, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of question that it's asking in this paper. So then the question becomes, all right, Paul, I get it. Like, you know, you can add, you know, you need the human part, but what about it in the human part? So that's where to, to add the transparency on the human side, we kind of introduce this notion of social transparency in AI systems. And right. we kind of operationalize a little bit of this in the paper. Right. So, yeah, it's, I think, very interesting about this in terms of operationalizing that not only do you highlight this need, which I think is very intuitive, but you actually explicitly talk about how to do this, how to view explainability beyond technical transparency and and how to integrate that and actually, you know, (laughs) where do you start? How do you, how do you do it? And so on. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I guess maybe can we dive in a bit more about this idea of social transparency since it's so important. Mm -hmm. So we know algorithmic transparency is sort of trying to understand what the algorithmic uh, side of it is doing, what, you know, the model is thinking, but what is social transparency? What are its components and yeah, how should people understand it? Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a fascinating question. Um, So, To understand social transparency, I think we have to accept a few things. First, we have to understand and acknowledge that work is social, right? You know, we don't work in silos, most of us. Uh, We work within teams. So that means, right, there is is some need to to add this transparency. There is a, you know, in an office when you're working with a team or, or virtually through Slack, right? There's a lot of chatter that is going on and there is a necessity behind that. So that is first the, the first realization that work is social. That means there might be a need to make that social nature a little bit transparent, especially when we're dealing with AI mediated decision support systems. So, and you know, as we share in the paper, we were trying to, um, so this is also difficult as well to some extent, right? Like one of the challenges that AI researchers face is how do we know what the future really looks like, mm-hmm. right? Without really investing months and months of work, building large infrastructures and models, and then realizing they're actually not very useful, right? That, that is a very hard like, cost of, of doing this. So to, to kind of explain that, we used this notion of scenario-based design. So this is coming from the traditions of design uh, fiction, uh, so I'm drawing a lot of this actually from the theoretical underpinnings of the human-centered explainable AI paper that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so using scenario-based design, we conducted around four workshops uh, with a lot of people from different technology companies just to get a sense of what are the things that are outside the black box that people want when they make a decision with an AI system. Right. So that's the, the, the workshop is meant to kind of get a more formative understanding. Right. What needs to be made transparent in this social system in terms yeah. of XAI. Right. Because there are so many things you can make transparent. Right. Because how do you know which one is the right thing to do? Right. Mm-hmm. And I think through these workshops and this was pre-COVID. Uh, so we had the ability to kind of get in person and kind of have these workshops. And what we learned 
was that out of this, and this is, I think, what we uh, what we call in the paper the four Ws, right? So in addition to um, the AI's technical transparency or algorithmic transparency, uh, these practitioners, you know, data scientists, uh, analysts, and others, wanted to know four things: who did what, when, and why. Mm-hmm. So those became, again, we are not saying like this is the end all be all to all social transparency. There might be other socially transparent systems that, that do very well. But actually in the cybersecurity example, going back to that, when we implemented this aspect of who did what, when, and why, so imagine like, you know, next to a threat, uh, you know, close these ports, right? Let's say, imagine that. Uh, if Julie had social transparency, what would Julie have seen? Julie who got fired before. So um, when you get this, um, you know, Julie sees the AI is recommending the ports to be closed. And you're like, okay, is that true? Like, is that real or not? I don't know if it's a false positive. But then Julie is able to see, you know, maybe 10 other people dealing with a very similar situation in the past. And in one of those, Julie sees, right, one of the who's, right, maybe imagine this is Bob. And Bob is a you know, veteran in the industry. He's like a level three analyst. Um, and he says, right, oh, these are backup server reports, ignore, mm-hmm. right? So who did what, right? When, maybe let's say three months ago and why? So the why is the reasoning, right? Like these are backup server reports, ignore. By situating this extra piece of information that is actually capturing, you know, one might argue, hey, Paul, like that seems like a bad problem. They should have just added that to the data set, Right. That's not the, and that is where I think the, the critical insight lies. There is not enough things you can add in the data set. It's like a you know, golden goose chase. Because it's, it's always, outside the model, right? Exactly. And sometimes yeah. things happen dynamically. Remember, data sets are basically snapshots of the past. And work norms actually change over time, right? Due to the sensitive nature of certain cybersecurity explanation, uh, institutions, you do not want certain things to be coded into a data set, right? Because what if that gets hacked? Then all your secrets are out. So there will always be elements that are not quantifiable, that are not capturable in a cleanly made data set. In those cases, those very things that are hard to quantify, hard to incorporate, often can be the difference maker between right and wrong decisions with AI. So by adding this social transparency, you're able to inform someone to know when to trust the AI versus not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And to dig a bit deeper, I would like to hear how did this scenario-based design uh, process work? I, I think figure one in your work is, is mm-hmm. really interesting. Is that the scenario you used? Um, so, you know, in this scenario, we asked our participants to kind of envision being in, uh, in, in using a AI powered pricing tool to price an access management product to a customer called Scout, right? Mm. So the AI kind of does its analysis and recommends that, hey, you got to sell it at 100 bucks per month per account. And it, it also shares some post hoc explanations and kind of justifies why it said what it said. And that the, the model, the technical transparency piece is like the AI took the quota goals of a salesperson into account. It did a comparative pricing of what similar customers pay. 
And also it gave you the floor, sort of like what is the cost price for doing this product? So these are, so imagine that's the first layer. And today, right, that's the state of the art. Nothing is better than that, right? We don't have the social transparency that we kind of envision in, in this paper, but that is where the state of the art was. So that was our grounding moment. So we would ask our people as they went through the walkthrough, what would you do right now? Do you think this is, you know, before we showed them any social transparency, right? Mm -hmm. And we will see that most people agree with that. Like, okay, yeah, this seems like a decent, you know, we also kind of calibrated the price point by asking experts. So we kind of grounded a lot of this data, even though it's a scenario, if it's fictional, the fiction is grounded in reality, a version of reality. And then we told them, like, now imagine, what if you found out that, you know, only one out of three people sold this product at the recommended price? What would you do? And you could see our participants kind of get very interested like that. I was like, oh, that's really interesting information. Uh, that made, t helps me like calibrate what to do. So then we kind of dug deeper, which is like the you know, bullet points three, four, and five to share three examples of past colleagues who have dealt with uh, the same customer scout on similar products, right? And then one of the most important comments were made by Jessica or Jess, who is a sales director, and turns out Jess had rec rejected the recommendation, but the sale did happen. And the comment was the most important where they said that, hey, it's COVID-19 and this was done at the height of the pandemic. Um, you know, I can't lose a long-term profitable customer. So they offer 10% below the cost price. And that's mm -hmm. the important part, right? That not only did they give you a discount, but they, the Jess, the director, had given them below the cost price. And, and that social context of what was going on that was outside the algorithm, right, very much informed how people acted on it. Because remember, without any of this context, they felt the price was fair, it was done the right way, you know, the, the justifications were right. But very few people actually, you know, offered the same price when they knew what others had done, especially when a director level person had done it before. Mm, yeah, so in a sense, I think going back to something you mentioned, it, it's letting you know what the AI model doesn't know, right? It doesn't know about COVID. And these four W's, the social scenario, it doesn't really explain the model or its decisions, but it does like to understand the AI system better in the sense of like the AI system is situated within the organization. And so you, you get to know more its weaknesses and when, when to follow it, maybe when not, which I think would be a lot harder without seeing like, okay, this person accepted discrimination, this person didn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and this figure, I think, illustrates that yeah, really well. And I think it's kind of asking the question, right? What are the AI's blind spots? And can other humans who have interacted with this system in the past address it? So like, you know, for instance, I'm now currently working with radiation oncologists on a very similar project. And in radiation oncology, um, just like in other fields, there is no like absolute ground truth. With AI researchers, we are so comfortable with the terminology of ground truth, right? But when it comes to using radiation to treat cancers, there are established practices. There is no like absolute gold thing that everyone must do because each patient is different, uh, each treatment facility is different. So in that case, knowing when to trust the AI's recommendations, so for instance, if the AI is saying, you know, give this much radiation 
to the patient's left optic nerve, right? That's a very high stakes decision, right? Yeah. Because if you do it the wrong way, you can blast away my left optic nerve and take away my vision, right? But guess what? What the AI system might not have known is that the patient is blind in the right eye. So all of the calculus goes away. Because, you know, there's no like central blindness data in randomized controlled trials. Right. So, so just knowing that extra piece can help you calibrate how much treatment you want to give it. Mm-hmm. And knowing what your peers have done, right? Because in, in these kind of communities of practices, it's very much community driven, right? Like the radiation oncologists kind of um, have these standards that they co-develop together through studies. So this social transparency starts mattering extremely when the cost of failure is also very high, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, blasting someone's optic nerve, nerve out with radiation is, is a pretty high cost rather than, you know, missing a song recommendation. And I think that's the other part. Like you don't think, I don't, social transparency is not really helpful when the stakes are low or when the nature of the job is not very collaborative, right? But the more the stakes are high, the more collaboration is needed, social transparency becomes important because mm-hmm. work then becomes very social. Yeah, it's this makes me feel like you can almost uh, consider this like what if the AI model is in some sense a coworker, right? When you work with people, some people you trust more and less, and when you do decision making, it is sort of collaborative. You know, you might debate, you might ask, well, have you considered this? Have you considered that? That's not something that you can do with an AI system, at least for now. You can't say, well, you know. Have you taken this into account, that into account? But seeing the social context, it seems to me those other people might have realized that and made this comment and now you know, well, it didn't take into account the COVID thing. Um, so yeah, I think that's interesting in the sense of like, you, you get to know the system as another entity you work with almost. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's kind of changes the way we think of human AI collaboration. Right. Um, because you are now like I often think about it like, you know, Avatar, the last airbender. Uh, I don't know. If you, <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's like, what does Avatar do when he faces a rather like Avatar and right? Like when he faces some difficult choices, he kind of seeks the counsel of past avatars who had come before him. And so the social transparency is in a weird way of capturing that historical context mm-hmm. um, in a system in situ that really makes your decision-making in that moment much more informed. Because at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves why these explanations are there. They're there to make things actionable. Mm-hmm. If, you, if someone cannot do something with your explanation, then there might as well not be any explanation, right? Um, like if the machine is explaining itself and I cannot do anything with it, that's very difficult. Like I don't know like what purpose it's serving other than just understanding, but if I understand and cannot do anything with that understanding, what is it there for anyway? So social transparency can make things more actionable, Mm -hmm. even if, right? Even if the participants are saying no to the AI system. And that's the crucial part. I think it changes how we formulate trust because a lot of the work around trust that we see is around user acceptance. I want my user to like me. I want my user to accept me. But I think what we are seeing is it's not about just mindlessly fostering trust. It's about mindfully calibrating trust, right? You don't want people to overtrust your system. 
because then there are liability issues. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, so in terms of this process, you started these four workshops. You, I think, hammered out this idea of the four W's, uh, what, who, why, when. And if I understand correctly, after the workshops, you then had sort of a more controlled study with 29 participants. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So then, then we really did this. So once we built the scenario, right, then we kind of went, made people go through the scenario they study. So we would walk them through the scenario just the way I kind of described a few minutes ago. Um, and we will start seeing that how they start thinking through this problem. This is the beauty of scenario-based design, right? You can mm -hmm. think of this as a probe. So you're probing for reactions about an AI-powered system without really needing to invest the severe infrastructure that is needed to make a like a full-fledged AI system. But you're getting very good design elements out of this for a lot less cost. It does not mean that you don't build a system. Of course you do. So for instance, um, in the cybersecurity case, once we did very similar studies with them with scenarios, we went and we built out these things. And guess what, right? Like uh, two years into the project with them, that company actually now lives in a socially transparent world mm -hmm. where all their decisions are actually automatically situated with prior history. And they are actually able to use the four W's as training to retrain their models so that the decision is not only just algorithmically situated, but also socially situated, right? So it becomes of a sort of feature space that the model is informed by, it seems. Absolutely. And then think about it that way, right? Like you are also getting a corpus without actually building a corpus, right? Because over time, what is going to happen? These four Ws are going to get enough density, depending on your use, right? Where they become large enough that you can feed back into the model. Mm. But the cool part is from day one, they're giving value to the user, right? So they are not like being um, in like a grunt work of a data set building task. That is the one thing that a lot of my cybersecurity analyst stakeholders would tell me. They're like, hey, this is actually useful. I like doing this because it doesn't make me feel like I'm building a stupid data set that I might mm -hmm. not ever see. So they're actually building a corpus while getting value from it, which is very hard to achieve in any kind of data set building tasks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting to hear that they are you know, more into it. I think it's also fun that, you know, having done a study in the paper, you are able to not just, you know, give your own take, but actually quote the study participants and, you know, really, you know, show in their words uh, very concretely how, you know, you came to your conclusions. So for instance, one quote that I think is really relevant is, I hate how it just gives me a confidence level and gibberish that the engineers will understand there's zero context, right? It's a very mm -hmm. human reaction that really tells you, well, <laughs> you know, you, you, this person wants the context, right? So then, you know, we've talked through some of these examples, uh, your study, and now I think we can dive in a little more. So we've talked about social transparency, and I think in the paper you also break down a little bit what exactly is made visible, what mm -hmm. you want to make visible. So the decision-making context and the organizational context. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, what is involved in these things that people really need to understand? 
Yeah. So, you know, through the four W's, right? So these are the kind of like the, the you can think of them, the vehicles that carry this context, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so through the four W's, the first thing, and I think we kind of shared a framework that says how it makes context visible at three levels, which is the te- technical, the decision-making, and the organizational, right? Mm-hmm. So, but with the umbrella of all three is the first thing is what we call crew knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. So crew knowledge is really an important part of these informal knowledge that is acquired through hands-on experience. It's, it's part and it's tacit of every job that anyone has ever done, right? And yeah. it's often situated locally in a, in a tight-knit community of practice, sort of like an aggregated set of know-hows, right? So the why, right, the why is actually giving insight into that crew knowledge. These are the variables that would be important for decision-making, but sometimes are not captured in the AI's kind of feature space, right? Mm-hmm. The other part is like social transparency can support analogical reasoning um, in terms of like, okay, someone has made the decision in the past. So like, remember Jess, right? Jess gave a discount for the COVID case. So mm-hmm. that means I too can give the discount on the COVID case, right? Um, so it's, it's, it's aiming, so at the, at the technical level, it helps you calibrate the trust on the AI, right? At the decision-making level, it can foster a sense of confidence and a decision-making resilience um, that, you know, how good are you? Can you trust the AI? Can you not trust the AI? And, and, and self-confidence, right? Because yeah. there's difference in between, like, do I trust the AI versus do I trust myself to act on the AI? Mm-hmm. And I think those two are slightly different constructs. And organizationally, like these sets of four Ws is, is capturing this tacit knowledge and the meta-knowledge of how an organization works. So you get an understanding of norms and values, right? Um, it, it kind of encodes a level of institutional memory mm-hmm. and it, it, it promotes kind of accountability because you can audit it, right? If you mm-hmm. know who did what, when, and why, you can go back and audit things. Um, so those are some of the things that we got out of this that are helpful when it comes to making AI-powered decision-making. Yeah, it's, I think, quite interesting, this notion of decision-making and organization context. I think you define a decision as sort of, you know, localized to a decision. So, like, you know, you choose a price quota, you you think about similar price quotas. Organizational context is something that's, I think, easier to forget, but it's sort of, you know, what do we stand for? You know, how aggressive are we? You know, these sorts of things that are, more general and uh, yeah, pretty interesting to me, I think. Um, And I guess you came to understanding this sort of split by just seeing what people used or included in their four W's. Yeah. So I think this came back from those workshops, right? Like where we kind of understood like, okay, like, cause you know, we were thinking maybe there is an H like how maybe there is another W like where. So we were trying to understand um, what would be the minimum viable product, so to speak, about in the in the social transparency? Because we didn't also want to overwhelm people. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way we kind of understood like what they were doing is actually through the case studies that we have run, in addition to the study, right? So we were trying, we were inspired by that aspect, and and that's why, like you know, in in table three, we kind of talk about you know. What, what was it? So it's, it's an action taken on the AI, the decision outcome, 
why is like the comments with the rationale that justifies the decision, right? Because what and why is always linked. And then who? Uh, the name, the organizational role, because sometimes seniority starts playing a role. Like if mm-hmm. it's a director, you kind of take their their view a little more than others. And then when is the time of decision? And that's important because sometimes some, some decisions are not relevant, right? So think about like, you know, pre-COVID decisions do not become very relevant during COVID. So those are some of the things that we found not just by our workshops, but also analyzing the data, the qualitative data through the interviews and the walkthroughs that we had made. Mm, yeah, and then you found, you know, the what is really important, the why is important, the when, you know, sometimes, but, you know, yeah, not yeah. much. And that also, I think, probably informed your UI, sort of how exactly. should you present these things. We actually asked our participants at the end of it, I'm like, can you rank it and tell me why, right? So we would make them rank the four W's. Like, tell me what you cannot live without. And some, everyone said, I can't live without the what. And then I said, okay, imagine now I can give you one more. What would that be? They're like, oh, I need to know the why. And then I said, now imagine I give you one more. They'll be like, oh, I need to know the who. So that's how we kind of made them do this ranking task at the end. Mm-hmm. To get a sense of importance. Because sometimes many companies might not have all the four W's. There might be privacy concerns that prevent the who from being shown, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can also see like, you know, biases creep up. Like if I show the profile picture and, you know, you can, you know, guess the person's race or gender from the profile picture, um, it can create certain biased viewpoints Uh, or even the location, right? Because certain companies are multinational and it could be that, you know, certain locations are not often looked positively enough um, and that might bias the, you know, receiver's perception. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think, again, it's interesting here, uh, just reading the paper, which I think is, is you know, I would recommend it. I think it's quite approachable, is, uh, again, you have these quotes from the study participants that make it very concrete. You know, one of them is, the outcome should be a TLDR, the why is there if I'm interested. Um, then there's also the who. Someone said, if I knew who to reach out to, I could find out the rest of the story and so on. So again, it's it's really gives you a sense of how your study and interacting with people led you to your conclusions, uh, which I really enjoyed on reading the paper. No, uh, you know, thank you so much for the kind words. We, we put a lot of love into this paper. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, that's what you need, I think, to make a paper really enjoyable. So your work paid off. Now, I think we could touch on a lot of it uh, and went through, I think, hopefully the most important stuff in terms of the study elements and the four W's and make clear what social transparency is. Now, on to a couple final things. So we've uh, said, you know, it's good to have this on top of what is already there of algorithmic transparency. So you need to add the social transparency. And one question there is, well, is that easy? Or is it a very challenges in place that would make it harder um, to do that? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I think, you know, as, as with everything, there has to be the infrastructure that is supported, right? Um, and there are challenges like privacy. There are challenges like biases, uh, information overloads, as well as incentives, right? Like 
if you want to engage in a socially transparent system, there has to be incentive for people to engage with it. Like, you know, give those four W's as they're working. There is burden that is added, right? Like no freeze lunches. Um, mm-hmm. And so that means we have to be very mindful of that. Uh, and, you know, you can, you know, with the four W, you could also kind of promote groupthink, right? Imagine in a company culture where you're not allowed to go against your boss and you see a comment from your boss previously. So, so we have to be careful. You know, it's not a golden bullet. Um, so we have to be very careful in when we operationalize the social transparency that, you know, we are trying to be very mindful of some of these challenges. Like, you know, do we really want to see all the four W's at every single time? No, mm-hmm. there are ways to summarize it. And we have done that, you know, in my project with the cybersecurity people, we have been able to figure out how to summarize these aspects at a level of detail that is actionable. Mm, yeah. And so speaking of cybersecurity people, so I take it outside of a study, I was interacting with these participants and, um, you know, figuring out the study context, you also took this four W's context to an actual organization and then tried it out. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So like, uh, if you remember, so, uh, just from a timeline perspective, right. So mm-hmm. by that time, I think we wrote the paper, we already had, you know, this is obviously the study. So there was an empirical study that was done separate from this in parallel uh, was the cybersecurity project that I was running for a long, long time. And what I had the, I guess, luxury of the, knowing the future to some extent is uh, we were able to incorporate a lot of these four W's into their system. And they lived in a socially transparent world when we wrote this paper. So that's why we were able to talk a lot about these transfer cases, challenges, because those are some of the challenges we faced in the real world when mm-hmm. we were trying to implement this in an enterprise setting that is multinational. I see. So when you presented this and sort of said we should do this, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how receptive are people? Did they sort of get it right away? Or? Initially, there was a little bit of like a hesitation, I think, because someone said, like, how is this explainability? Yeah. Uh. <laughs> right because uh, there's this uh, the there's a very powerful like ai developer that like this is not explainability and i think that's when it kind of like the idea of the paper kind of came to me right? uh, I like, our idea of explainability is so narrow that we have a hard time kind of even envisioning more than that mm-hmm. so what we actually did to kind of address those kind of concerns is you know as we as you saw also on the paper in this empirical study that we had concrete uh, like for directly from the stakeholders information about how these additional contexts help them understand the system, right? And then if we go back to our initial definition of explainability, right? Things that help me understand AI systems, right? And in this case, AI systems are not algorithm. These are human AI assemblages, right? So, and they're socio-technically situated. So there you go. So, Initially, there was a lot of um, pushback, but what, you know, the proof is often in the pudding, right? Like, so when we added social transparency, the engagement went from like 2% to 96%. And, you know, that you can't ignore, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so so those are some of the things that helped a lot of the stakeholders have more buy-in and get a sense of, okay, you know, this is important. This might not look algorithmic, but it has everything to do with the algorithm. Right. 
Yeah, it, it kind of harkens back to the title of the work, right? Expanding ex- explainability. You know, this person said, how is this explainability? Well, <laughs> you point it out and you sort of make the argument that this should be part of explainability. And by adding it, you get sort of a more holistic, full understanding. Is that yep. kind of a fair characterization? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes uh, the simplicity is kind of elusive and deceptive. But, uh, you know, we also have to understand that sometimes very powerful ideas are also very simple ideas. And I think yeah. within AI, we have to kind of go back to those roots at some point. Like not everything that is complex is good. Neither is not everything that is simple is bad. You could have very good ideas that are very simple. Yeah, exactly. Simple ideas can be very powerful. And I guess one of the key insights here is social transparency as a concept and as something that needs to be part of explainability. So just to go back and situate within the XAI research field, you know, um, I don't know too much about the context of that field and what is going on there. So what do you think would be, hopefully, I guess, the impact and what this could enable as far as future research? First of all, I think it makes this very nebulous topic of socio-organizational context tractable, right? Like there are four concrete things to go for, and that's a good starting point. It gives people to grasp onto that and build on it. And I think that's what we actually invite people to do, right? Uh, Is now that we have at least started the conversation that explainability is beyond algorithmic transparency and given the community one way of capturing the socio-organizational context, I think now it starts to seed Mm more ideas. And I think there's fascinating papers that I've seen after that around um, at, at DIS, actually, uh, that talk using this notion of social transparency, talked about end-to-end life cycle perspectives within explainability, like who needs to know what, when, and why, like Shipi Dhanokar and Christine Wolf and others have kind of written about it. So I think it, it, it gives a, a bedrock for future work to kind of build on it. And I hope it does. And I hope you know, work within explainability takes far beyond social transparency. Mm-hmm. There are other things that are outside the box that also need to be included. And, you know, how do we encode that? I hope people use this kind of scenario-based design techniques. And it's also not shy away from the fact that if something is simple, right, as long as it's powerful, that's still a valid and good contribution. Yeah, I guess in a sense, that's how you want research to work. Someone reads your paper and is like, wow, this is cool, but what if we did this? Or, or yeah. this thing doesn't work. You know, I have this idea. So that makes a lot of sense. And also to that notion of sort of the context and, and the field itself, we talked a bit on a bit of a pushback you got at the industry level within the research community you know, when you submitted it, when you got reviews, when you presented it, what was the reception of your colleagues? I think it was surprising to us. We always thought when we wrote the paper that people either hate it or they will love it. Uh-huh. I don't think there was anyone who's going to be neutral to it. Because <laughs> it was making a very prog- provocative argument. It was making the argument that explainability is not transparency. It is more than that. And it's not just saying that. It's like, this is how it, you know, this is one way of doing it. So thankfully, it was, you know, well-received um, and, you know, the presentation at Kai went very well. Um, 
And, you know, we were very lucky to receive uh, Best Paper Honorable Mention on it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think overall it went better than we expected, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> and it's good to hear that given, again, this was, uh, it looks to be quite fair for it. Kai is, is pretty big, right? Yeah, it is the premier HCI conference. So like, not like NeurIPS for ML, because NeurIPS runs at a different scale, but like in terms of like the premier venue, right. Kai is that for HCI, what NeurIPS might be for ML, I guess that's a different way of looking at it. Well, so yeah, that's really cool. And we'll have a link to that paper again in the description and our Substack. So if you do want to get more into it, uh, you can just click and read it. And touch just to touch on a bit uh, what has happened since uh, in your research, uh, you've had actually a couple of works. So first up, you have the Who Inexplainable AI how AI background shapes perceptions of AI explanations. How does that relate to your prior work and in this work? And sort of what what was what is it? Absolutely. So I mean this is directly like related to the human-centered explainable AI kind of work in the sense that not all humans are the same when it comes to interacting with AI systems. I don't think anyone will challenge that observation, right? Mm-hmm. But then the question becomes, okay, who are these people? How do their different user characteristics impact how they interpret explanations? So in this paper, it's just something that we looked at like a very critical dimension, which is an AI background. Like if you think about consumers of AI technology versus creators of AI technology, oftentimes consumers don't have the level of AI background that the creators have, right? So given that this background is a consequential dimension, but also the fact that it might be absent in the users of systems that we build, how does that background actually impact the perceptions of these AI explanations, right? Because again, we're making the explanations often for the receiver, right? The explainee rather Mm -hmm. than the explainer. So that this is the paper that is, I think, the first paper that kind of explores AI background as as a dimension, to, to see like, well, how does that impact? Like we say humans, humans, but who are these humans? Well, let's look at two, two groups of humans, like people with and people without. So yeah. this paper kind of presents a study um, based largely actually on the Frogger work uh, yeah. way back when uh, to kind of get at these questions. Yeah, it, it makes me think also, aside from like, uh, you know, AI developer, not AI developer, even just like programmer who works with algorithms versus a person in sales, you you might interact with the AI system differently. So it seems, you know, good to take into account for sure. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I think also you had uh, this other paper, Explainability Pitfalls Beyond dark patterns in explainable AI, which sounds a little bit exciting. <laughs> so yeah, what's that about? So this paper is actually related to the Who in XAI paper because one of the findings in Who in XAI that we got was both groups, the group with AI and non-AI backgrounds, had exhibited unwarranted faith in numerical-based explanations that had no um, uh, meaning behind them, so to speak. Like even if people did not understand what the numbers meant, mm-hmm. there was a level of over trust in them. 
So based on that observation, what is interesting is like we were not trying to trick anyone, right? Like that's the importance of this finding. That in the study, we were not trying to trick anyone. We just used the numerical explanations as a baseline. Our main mm-hmm. instrument was the textual explanations, the actual rationales, right? Um, and while trying to examine that, we were like, oh my God, why are people like so in love with these numbers that they <laughs> tell us that they don't understand? Because we have qualitative data where they tell us, I don't understand it now, but I can understand it later. Right? <laughs> and what is interesting is the people with AI background and those without have different reasons for over-trusting the AI, right? Mm-hmm. So, so over-trusting the numbers, excuse me. Yeah. So we started asking the questions, all right, there are many times where harmful effects can happen, like overtrust, even when best of intentions are there. Like in our case, right? A lot of harmful work in explainable AI is couched under this term called dark patterns, which are basically deceptive practices. It's easiest to explain it from the UX side. Like if you think about like, you know, in certain websites, they have all these like, uh, like transparent like ads that mm. when you're trying to click the play button like 10,000 windows open up right and you have to <laughs> click them 10,000 times to get it so yeah. those are dark patterns right they're trying to drive clicks by tricking the user mm-hmm. but you know not all harm patterns like harmful patterns are created equal mm-hmm. so what happens when harmful effects emerge when there is no bad intention behind it right right so to answer that question, we wrote another kind of conceptual paper, and we call these things explainability pitfalls, right? So these pitfalls are certain things that you might not intend for bad things to happen, but like a pitfall in a real like piece of, like in the real world, you might inadvertently fall into it, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like pitfalls are there to like trap people. Sometimes pitfalls emerge in nature, in, in, in jungles and other places, mm-hmm. just by the construction, right? But you might inadvertently fall into it. So this paper is kind of trying to articulate what are explainability pitfalls? How do you address them? What are some of the strategies to mitigate them? So this is more of another kind of a conceptual paper situated with a case study. Um, And it recently got into the human-centered AI workshop at NeurIPS this year. So we're looking forward to sharing it with the community as well. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, that's, uh, I think, roughly in a month, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. This concept of, you know, here's something you should avoid doing, even if it seems like a good idea, uh, almost publishing negative results, uh, which is, which is fun. Well, we went through a lot of your work, uh, and, and almost traced, uh, you know, from the beginning to the present. But of course, it's also important, again, to mention, as you've done before, that this was, you know, a lot of this was done with many collaborators, and you built on a lot of uh, prior research, obviously, in many fields. This is true of any research. Uh, jumping to the present, um, maybe beyond your papers, what kind of is the situation when it comes to the community working on XAI, on explainable AI, and also human-centered XAI? You know, is is this view of being human-centered or socio-technical, is that becoming more popular or are more people sort of aware of it, that sort of thing? No, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, I, I stand in the shoulder of giants, right? There's no two ways about it. Without the fantastic people I work with, none of this work becomes a reality. 
Um, and the community is a is, is, is something that I care deeply about. So we have been very lucky in this context. Uh, in Kai 2021, we were able to host the first human-centered explainable AI workshop. It was actually one of the largest attended workshops in Kai's oh, wow. history. Uh, more than 100 people came over 14 countries. Um, so we had a stellar group of uh, papers. Uh, we had a keynote from Tim Miller um, and expert panel discussions. So I think that community is still going on. Actually, we did just propose to host the second workshop at Kai. And I think after this, we want to take it beyond Kai. We want to take it to NeurIPS. We want to take it to AAAI. Uh, to try to see how more can we intersect with mm -hmm. more um, other communities around XAI, like other relevant social groups, right? Uh, the computer vision people, the VIS people. Um, so, you know, I, these are some things that we deeply care about. And that is something that I would, um, that I'm kind of um, like looking forward to. Yeah, definitely. So uh, just to get a bit more into that, you know, What's next for you, both in terms of this community aspect of, uh, you know, having various events to, uh, you know, let people know about this you and also in terms of, I guess, where your research is headed? Yeah, I think for me, I'll, as I shared, there's a project that I'm doing with radiation oncologists actually exploring social transparency in their world. And this has been actually a very long term engagement. I've been working with them for more than two years now. I've also kind of been working with the Data and Society Institute uh, on algorithmic justice issues around the global south. So, you know, what happens when we all talk a lot about algorithmic deployment, right? Mm -hmm. um, yep. Like what before deployment, data set creation, but what happens when algorithms get taken out, right? Mm -hmm. what, happens then, what happens when they're no longer used? So there is a project that I'm running that has an explainability component as well as algorithmic justice component around the grading, like the algorithmic grading of the uh, GCE exams, which are like basically international exams administered by Ofqual and the UK governing boards. But these exams are actually administered in over 160 countries. So you might recall that, you know, in August of 2020, there were protests around, you know, an algorithm grading a lot of students. You know, while the reporting was great, it only focused on the UK. We really don't know what happened in the other 160 countries where these exams were administered. So, mm -hmm. you know, beyond, you know, as I said, you know, as you kindly shared in my bio, right, what happens to the people who are not on the table? And I think if you don't, you know, amplify people's voices who are not at the table, they often end up on the menu. So I think, you know, coming for a circle, like that's something that I'm deeply curious about. So that's roughly like, you know, um, what things are. And, you know, I have, uh, I have the privilege of giving a keynote at the World Usability Day, actually tomorrow on November 11th. I have some invited talks lined up at the University of Buffalo on the, on the 30th, and then an expert panel discussion, actually, at your university's medical school, uh, the Stanford Medical School's like human AI conference. Uh, so that's, that's pretty much like a, like a ramp up to the end of the year. Cool, yeah. <laughs> Sadly, we'll uh, release this podcast past the 11th. So. <laughs> but but uh, will these talks be recorded or public? Could be- uh, That's a know. very good point. Uh, thank you so much for asking. So I am gonna check it. What, what I would recommend if the listeners are there, um, if you check out my Twitter, if they are public, I will be sure to make sure that 
they are published and shared widely. So as of now, I'm not sure which of these would be public versus not. Um, but if they are, I will publish them on my Twitter. Uh, so if people are interested, uh, and I think we can also add links to them um, uh, after the podcast is even published. As exactly. Yeah. So you can look down in the description. We'll figure it out and we'll, we'll have links uh, to, to this and all the papers and everything. All right, so uh, that's cool. And then as I like to wrap up after all this intense discussion of research and ideas and studies, just uh, you know, a little bit about you and not your research. Um, what do you do <laughs> these days or you know, general beyond research? What are your main hobbies? What are your main interests? Yeah, I guess um, you know I've been. Uh, uh, I love to cook. I think that is something that has been um, uh, during the you know stay at home in pandemic mode has been a blessing. Um, I absolutely love European football or soccer. Oh. My team is not doing very well, Manchester United right now, but I tend to that is my escape. Uh, mm-hmm. And I also play this game called Football Manager, which oh, is like. Yeah. A, uh, not like fantasy football, but it's like kind of like that, where it's a very data-driven engine, um, and that's how it comes up to um, how, you know, like this, like this game engine that kind of predicts the future and can simulate games. That is my escape uh, in terms of you know all the things in reality. Um, but you know, I I absolutely a big fan of old school hip hop, so I, I listen to a lot of music. I whenever I get some time, I do mix beats uh, uh, on my own time uh, for my own enjoyment. I don't think I have a SoundCloud account or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those are my ways of keeping sane. Uh, but most importantly, one of the most cherished things that I do uh, is uh, mentoring uh, young researchers, especially who are underrepresented, especially who are from the global south. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm very proud of all the mentees that have taught me so much uh, throughout the years, like ever since 2000, I think, 11, 12. I've had the privilege of mentoring around 100 people from many different countries in Asia and Africa and uh, kind of like guiding them through high school. And, and, and those that is something that like gives me a lot of joy. Uh, actually, like whenever I get free time, that's actually what I do. And during application season, it really gets tough because you have a lot of requests to review applications. Because, uh, you know, sometimes, as you can imagine, right, like the application, the statement of purpose, it's often a black box, right? You don't yeah. really know what to write. So that is one thing that I get a lot of joy from. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I think, you know, we all got here with a good deal of mentorship, PhD has an advisor for a reason, you know, there's an assigned mentor. So it's, it does feel nice to give back. And I have always enjoyed, you know, being a teaching assistant and these various things are always pretty rewarding. Definitely. Well, that was a really fun interview. It was, you know, great to see or hear about this human-centered AI as a researcher who <laughs> works with robots, uh, refreshing to think about people for once. Thank you so much, uh, Upal, for being on the podcast. No, my pleasure. Thank you, Andre. I so appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and, and, and you know, in a way, through you, talk to the listeners. Um, thank you. Absolutely. 
And once again, this is the Gradient Podcast. Check out our magazine website at thegradient.pub. That's a URL. And our newsletter and actually this podcast at gradientpub.substack.com. You can support us there by subscribing and also share all of this review on this Apple and you know, all of these kinds of things. So if, if you dig this stuff, we would appreciate your support. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in to our future episodes.